finishing this study, it frees up my time to start researching for the next one. And we are going to be exploring heaven in the fall, which I'm super excited about. So you guys, I've so at least, I don't know, at least five people every study come up to me and say, you really need to teach the book of Revelation. Please, 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 please teach the book of Revelation. I don't know if you really want me to do that, but we are going to, um, we are going to end up in the book of Revelation for sure in the next study, um, but we're going to take a whole Bible perspective and just take a look of what, how does God, how does God make his presence um, manifest among people? And we are going to observe as we did a few weeks ago, it's always here, always here on earth. And that points us ahead to a beautiful, beautiful um, eternity that we have in store. All right, and we're going to learn that we don't need to have bucket lists because we can have new heaven and new earth lists. Yeah, baby. It's just a whole new way to think of, it's a whole new way to think of eternity. So I'm really, really, really excited about this one. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be doing. You can be praying as I start just reading and researching and writing. And Lord willing, um, I'll have a fresh new study guide for you, and we'll get to just explore heaven together. So, and hopefully it'll be a little slice of heaven when we do. <laughs> All right. Um, in the meantime, I know that Amy's mentioned there's going to be, I think, a couple of, um, like, mini Bible study events this summer, so keep the lookout for those. Also... Um, many of you probably already know, and you've probably already done all the studies that are up on my podcast, but the Her God Speaks podcast is another way um, that if you, like, really, really miss me, you can always, you can always hit up the Her God Speaks podcast. Um, I think this summer I'm going to do just a little mini-series on uh, just verses that we tend to take out of context, just little 20-minute spots on, like, here's this verse, here's what we think it means, here's what it actually means, and why it's important. So um, you can kind of be on the team really, really short and brief because I want to focus my attention on the fall study. But that's a way, if you're on Instagram, Her God Speaks, I'm on Instagram a lot. Facebook, if you message me on Facebook, it might be like a month, but I'll get, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll eventually see it. Um, but anyway, I will miss you guys. I miss you guys very much when we're not, when we're not meeting. But it's not over yet because we have a lot of ground to cover today. So I'm going to pray. I think we are, we are well-fueled. That food table was just particularly fantastic today. I don't know who made the cinnamon monkey bread. Okay. Amazing. My personal favorite. There's a lot of good stuff back there, but that's what I kept picking at. Yes. So now I'm going to have to go to the gym, thanks to you. All right. I don't usually go on Tuesdays, but all right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these friends that I get to study your word with. And uh, I, I love, I love to just hide away in my office and read big, fat books about the Bible and theology. And I, I, I love the times that I have with you alone. But there is nothing, nothing more formative, nothing more transforming, nothing more impactful than gathering with other believers and diving into your word together 
there's just something that happens as we come together as a community of women who are hungry for your word and who desire to be um, just vessels of your presence in our world. And so, God, I just, I thank you for this. I thank you for it. And uh, I pray that today, as we have so much to cover, such dense, dense passages, um, I pray that you would, as you have been these weeks, that you would be our guide, that you would help us to just take that little bit of truth, apply it to a little bit of life, that you would stir our affections for King Jesus, that you would stir our affections for um, the people that you have placed in our lives, that you, um, you want to show you want to show Jesus through us and um, just give us a sense of mission, a sense of sentness uh, as we wrap up these chapters. I know that's what uh, Jesus would want us to walk away with. And uh, we just thank you in advance for what you're going to do. And it is in the most precious name of our Savior that we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that I love Harry Potter. I was actually late to the Harry Potter game because we had a pastor a long, long time ago when it first came out that preached a sermon that was very anti-Harry Potter, and I, being the good girl that I was, became instantly convinced that Harry Potter is evil and it should be, like, banned for all Christians. Well, Fast forward a little while, that was of course when the books were just coming out, then my two very best friends who loved Jesus so much became Potterheads, and they loved these books, and I thought, oh my goodness, what is happening to my friends? And then finally, one of them convinced me that it is one of the most beautiful stories of unconditional sacrificial love that has yet to be written. And so I thought, I should give this a shot. And so my son came of age, and we started to read Harry Potter together. And it is to date, and I believe when I come to the end of my life and I look back on my years of motherhood, those months of reading Harry Potter together will remain the highlight of um, my, my relationship with, with my son. And we got a pug, and we named him Hagrid. So there you go. Like, we're really big fans. We really are. Well, I bring that up because in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, J.K. Rowling devastates, I mean devastates, like tears, all the things, devastates her readers with an unexpected turn of events. Professor Dumbledore, the beloved Professor Dumbledore, is the hero of the whole series, and he is the only person whose power for good can match Lord Voldemort's evil. But in the sixth book, a weakened Dumbledore stands at the top of the astronomy tower surrounded by his enemies, and he appeals to Harry Potter's teacher, Severus Snape, for help. And he says these two words, Severus, please, then Snape kills Dumbledore. The scene is heart-wrenching. And those who have been reading along, never we never liked Professor Snape. But 
We hoped against hope that he was Dumbledore's man. And now his betrayal of his mentor is complete. It's only in the very last book that we discover how wrong we were about Snape. Harry extracts memories from the dying Snape's mind and he pours them into a pensieve. It's this magical bowl where you can dive into other people's pasts. And we discover that everything Snape has done from book one has been motivated by his deep, passionate, unrequited love for Harry's mother. We see that Snape's anguish as Voldemort kills Lily Potter. And we learn that's, that it's why he commits himself, pledges himself to Dumbledore. And we also hear Dumbledore telling Snape, that he is dying from a slow-working, irreversible curse, and he makes Snape promise to kill him when the moment comes. And suddenly, the meaning of the words, Severus, please, are completely reversed. What appeared in book six is the ultimate betrayal is revealed in the last book to be the fulfillment of an unshakable promise. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth on the surface to anyone that was looking on definitely looked like the ultimate betrayal. It looked like the ultimate defeat. It looked like what many had suspected but secretly hoped wasn't true. That the claims of Jesus, these big, bold claims of Jesus were obviously just claims. When Jesus spoke the words, it is finished. It appeared to be the end. That he was finished, that his ministry was over, that his influence was done. The kingdom had not and would not come. But three days later, right, there's an empty tomb and there's a risen Jesus. And suddenly, the meaning of the words, it is finished are completely reversed. For the followers of Jesus, it had only just begun. And that is the gorgeous reality that we get to bask in together this morning. Now, I warned you last week that we would have way too much to cover in this last session together. We are going to read through chapters 18, 19, and 20, but here's how we're going to approach it. Rather than um, me taking the time to explain each verse, I'm going to highlight certain characters in the narrative, and I'm going to highlight one important truth that they teach us about Jesus and his kingdom. And you'll notice you don't have a listening guide this morning. And that is because I put that together on Monday. I probably need to get in a new work rhythm because life just tends to happen twice now. So maybe I need to rework my life a little bit. Um, but my sweet Landon did not 
go to school. Yes, ma'am. That was not in the plan, you guys. So anyway, um, it limited my time to, I wanted to put the time into the lesson, not the listening guide. So anyway, I will make sure when I get to the main points, I say them slowly and I repeat them so that if you want to take notes and write these things down, you certainly can. Um, but that's how we're going to do it. A lot of details are going to go unexplained. We are not even going to get to Peter's denials and restoration as important as they are. And I'm telling you this ahead of time to hopefully curb some of the profound disappointment that you are sure to feel <laughs> when we get to chapter 20 and you're like, what about 21? We're not going to cover it. I'm kidding. Uh, these chapters are so dense, we would need several Tuesday mornings to do them justice. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pull out some good stuff this morning. So go ahead, if you haven't already, open to John chapter 18. And we are going to start reading in verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out, and that's after he had this is a whole farewell discourse, and then his prayer that he prayed for them. After that, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with him. <coughs> and when Judas told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. And this was to fill the words that, fulfill the words that he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. All right. The first character or set of characters I want to draw your attention to is this company of soldiers along with Jewish officials and Judas. And here's what they teach us. So you can write on your sheet, company of soldiers. And, and here's the, the lesson or the truth they teach us. The powerful are powerless in the presence of Jesus. The powerful are powerless in the presence of Jesus. Everybody get that or need to say it again? Are we good? All right. So let's paint the picture. This company, the word means cohort. Um, I did some research in different commentaries, even did the whole, like, what does Wikipedia say? Um, and I got a range of answers. So some people say it's a tenth of a legion, which would be about 600. I also came up with the number 480. Others estimate a little bit like less than that. Needless to say, it's a whole bunch of big, burly Roman soldiers, all right? A whole bunch. That's the technical term. It's my definition, all right? And they were specifically told, we are specifically told that these men were armed and ready for a fight. 
right? That's, that's the picture that John paints. This is a powerful mob versus <laughs> Jesus and these 11 guys. But in his telling of the story, John goes out of his way to emphasize that Jesus maintained complete control over the entire situation. And that while it looked as if Jesus and his disciples were overpowered, the opposite was true. And I don't know if any of you took the time, I, I, I will admit, I didn't even have the time to read John's account of the crucifixion in parallel with the other gospel accounts. But if you ever do that, one thing you'll notice is John just doesn't harp as much on the suffering of Jesus. He just doesn't. He doesn't describe it. Um, he mentions that Jesus was flogged. There's no detail given. He mentions some certain aspects of the cross, but we don't get a vivid description of the nails being driven into Jesus' hands and all these you know, horrible form of torture. John just doesn't harp on it. And the reason John doesn't harp on it is because he presents Jesus as completely and totally in control. He knew it was coming. He's fulfilling the Father's will. Not a single feather is ruffled by this. He's just doing what he came to do. And so that's kind of the, the perspective that John is going to keep driving home. And here's some of our clues in this particular section that Jesus is in complete control. In verse 4, we're told very directly that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. I mean, we're just told point blank. He knew they were coming. He knew everything that was going to happen. We're also told in verse 4, and this is an important detail that I don't think I've ever stopped to ponder, but Jesus went out to meet them. So he's the first to speak. He's not cowering in the corner. He's not hiding in the shadows. There's a complete and total fearlessness on display here, and yet there is zero aggression. So Jesus knew how to be fearless and unaggressive at the same time. Wow. <laughs> Bold and unaggressive. It can be done. In verse 5, we have the statement, I am he. Now, we've talked about these statements before. This is actually the seventh and final occurrence of this standalone phrase in the book of John. So we have these I am statements that are connected to the metaphors. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. But we have standalone I am statements as well. And this is, we have seven of them. John loves sevens, right? This is the seventh one. And our English translations add the word he in order to conform it to the rules of English grammar. But the he is not in the original. It's just, I am. Now, on its own, this wouldn't be such a huge deal, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, actually an important word to know, if you ever read commentaries, they talk a lot about this Septuagint, because that was the Old Testament, that was widely used at the time. It was the Hebrew had been translated into Greek, all right? So in the Septuagint, the same Greek phrase that translates into English, I am, the same phrase we have here is how Yahweh consistently identifies himself, especially in the parts where he asserts his uniqueness, 
And I want to show you a couple of examples of that. You can listen or you can turn there. Um, Isaiah 43.10, and I'm going to do both of them in the book of Isaiah so we're not flipping everywhere all over the world. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 10, is one place that we see this phrase. Right, so God is declaring, you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Again, in our language, we've got to put the he there. You can't just have a am float around in the universe. It's got to have, have something there to, to, to anchor it. But it's that you may know and understand that I am. Same phrase that we see Jesus using over and over in the book of John. Another verse, just flip a page, um, Isaiah 44, verse 6. There's so many of these in the book of Isaiah. I'm just going to point you to a couple of them. It says, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says, I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God but me. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he is clearly connecting himself and his identity with these passages and so many others like them. And this explains why when Jesus simply says the word, I am, it literally knocks this big, burly, powerful Roman cohort with their torches and their lanterns and their weapons. It knocks them off their feet. Which is just like, oh my goodness, we have the playback footage, you know, in the new heaven and the new earth, and I hope that that's what our movie theaters are. I mean, honestly, I want to go to the movies, and I want to watch all these scenes as they actually happen. I'm believing for it. I think it would be great. I want to see this scene. I want to see all these big, bad Roman soldiers just bam. And you know what? All Jesus said was two words, I am. That's it. He just spoke. Another clue that Jesus was in complete control is in verse 8, where Jesus tells them to let his disciples go. He's like, you are seeking me, let these guys go, and they do. You notice that? They let him go. And that should not have happened. The disciples should have been taken right along with him. But even the biggest, baddest soldier in that cohort could not have laid a finger on those disciples apart from Jesus' permission. And they seem to have sensed that was the case. <laughs> so the company of soldiers and the Jewish officials show us that the powerful are powerless in the presence of Jesus. We are not to be fooled by the numbers. We are not to be fooled by the armor or the weapons, the determination, or even the apparent success. They arrest Jesus on his terms, not theirs. Unbeknownst to them, these enemies of Jesus who have set out to destroy him have actually set in motion the Father's plan to enthrone him. And that's just powerful. It's powerful. And that is what John is like. He is trying so hard to help us see that so hard. All right, let's continue on. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had, what did, he, what did Simon Peter have? A sword. And he drew it 
And he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then we're given a name. The servant's name was Malchus. So I've talked to you before about how John is not giving us security camera footage. Right? He is definitely um, fitting the events of Jesus' life into his own grid in order to convey certain things about Christ. But this is an eyewitness historical testimony. And these little clues, like Malchus, we have the guy's name, right? That is what you get when someone's actually telling the story who was actually there and saw it, all right? I also read somewhere that often when a name is given, it's because that person later on became a convert, which we don't know. But that often with, when church history, that name is mentioned because, like, the actual readers of this gospel, the original ones, might actually know the guy, right? And so it, the name matters to them. I, I don't know how to validate that, but I thought it was an interesting, interesting thought. All right, so verse 11. So Peter has drawn his sword. He's cut off Malchus's right ear. And remember, like, weapons are a thing in this scene. But look what Jesus says, verse 11. At that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? All right. So here we have Simon Peter. That's our next person. So you can write Simon Peter on your, on your little notes. And this is what he teaches us. The symbol that Jesus places at the very center of his kingdom. is not a sword, it's a what? Any guesses? It's a cross. So the symbol that Jesus places at the very center of his kingdom, that represents his kingdom, and points to what his kingdom is all about, it is not a sword, it's a cross. Now before we unpack that, I want us to first sympathize with Peter here. Unlike today... In our country, and really countries around the world, the commander-in-chief uh, today is fiercely protected from combat, right? But it wasn't like that for the kings of old. The kings of old were warriors. They were the ones who led the charge, not remotely from a command room, but literally. They, they went into battle, and they went into battle with swords. You watch all those old, old movies of like the... I don't know, and people actually wore armors. And the king's sword was a big deal. Why? Because he actually used it. He actually used it. It was a big deal. And if you think about the ancient prophecies, a lot of you studied uh, Isaiah with me. And those ancient prophecies predicted that Jesus would be a victorious warrior king. And so Peter's not totally lost his mind here. His reaction actually, from, from a human perspective, makes a lot of sense. Kingdoms and swords from Peter's everything, every category he had for kings and kingdoms. Like those things, two things go together. Kings rule by the power of the sword. That's how they get people to do what they want to do and then not do what they're not supposed to do, right? But notice that Jesus draws a contrast between Peter's sword and the father's cup. And so we have to ask, all right, well, what is this cup Jesus is talking about? Well, the cup is a well-established, mentioned a few different times in the Old Testament, a well-established symbol in the Old Testament of God's 
wrath. And Jesus knew full well he was about to drink it down to its very last drop. So both Peter's sword and the Father's cup represent death. But one takes life, the other gives life. One asserts power, the other lays it down. One dominates, the other surrenders. You see, you wield a sword, you yield to a cross. Do you remember the famous words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 24? He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, this is what he's got to do. He's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And do you remember what Jesus taught his followers about how they ought to respond to their enemies. Matthew 5, we are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There is no sidestepping the fact that the call to follow Jesus is a call to die, if not literally in body, then figuratively in self-denial and radical sacrificial love. And yet, I was thinking this week, and this is all speculation, and you may have a different opinion than I do. But if we could conduct a massive survey of Americans who claim no affiliation with the church, and if we were to ask them, if you had to pick a symbol that best represents followers of Jesus Christ, and by represents, I mean like how they react to culture, how, how Christians treat those they don't agree with, um, th their political impulses, how they behave in an election year, social media presence, overall attitude, etc., etc. If we were to take a poll and you had to pick one of these two symbols that best reflect the Christians you know and how they operate, how they live, would you pick a sword or would you pick a cross? I have a strong suspicion that the resounding answer would be sword. Anybody who spent five seconds on Twitter and sees not just how Christians treat the world, but how they treat each other would say, oh, hands down, sword. You ask any secular person what Christians are against, they can spit out ten things without even trying. Bam, 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 bam. This is what they hate. They hate this, and 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 they hate this. And they're boycotting these, all these businesses, and this is what they're against. If you were to ask the same person, well, what are Christians for? I seriously doubt the answers would come so easy. And that is something we should all spend some time just thinking about. And I don't have an answer, and I'm not going to throw out, like, here are five steps for us to get better. I, I don't. Because, like, at the end of the day, the Spirit's got to do the work and the hearts and all, all of that. But at least we've got to be aware of it. Remember, Jesus had all power with zero aggression. 
symbol that he put at the very center of his kingdom was a cross, not a sword. And it's just, it's worth pondering. Well, as the story continues, Jesus is taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. Peter's three denials are woven in to that part. We are going to skip down to Jesus' interaction with Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, because that's where John focuses most of his attention. So we're going to focus most of our attention there as well. So skip down to verse 28. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. I don't know if you noticed, but the Passover plays heavily into John's narrative. The timetable is different in John's gospel than the synoptic gospel. And when I first wrote this study, I bought into the all the intricate ways to reconcile. Honestly, I think that um, John is working off a little bit of a different timetable because he has a theological point he's trying to make about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover, that he is the Passover lamb. There's certain like time cues and stuff. And for us, we're like, oh, that's inaccurate. But in the ancient mindset, um, historians could do stuff like that and it still be a historical account. So again, there's different opinions on that. You're going to, you start reading the commentaries, there's such a broad view of um, how to account for the differences between John's timetable, his chronology, and the synoptic chronology. I'm landing more on John is reading everything from the resurrection backward and is, is operating, trying to make some theological points. He's not quite as concerned with chronology, but that's, that's just one opinion among others. There are really, <laughs> gets really complicated, but there are ways to reconcile all the different accounts. But just, that's just a note about that. All right, so um, it's Passover. Pilate came out to them and said, because they wouldn't go into Pilate, so there's like this in and out and in and out. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, he wouldn't have, we wouldn't have handed them over to you. That is like not an answer. Do you notice that? And Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. So it's very clear what they want. And they said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. And then Pilate went back into the headquarters, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And this, this is the first of many, many, many references to king. Are you king of the Jews? King of the Jews? King of the Jews? And Jesus answered, <laughs> Are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? Is this your idea? Or is this something you've heard? It's very interesting. John is clearly showing that Jesus is the king of the Jews. But Jesus never claims the title. Really fascinating. He never directly says, yes, I am. <laughs> but he obviously is. John's just such a brilliant writer. It's brilliant how he presents all of this. Jesus answered, uh, okay, verse four, uh, 35. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have, what have you done? He says, my kingdom, so he doesn't call himself a king, but he's, he does have a kingdom, is not of this world. That could also be from this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. Again, Jesus recognizes that earthly kingdoms 
are run by the power of the sword. And if, if his kingdom were an earthly kingdom, his would be too. But it's not, right? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. 37, you are king then, Pilate asked. <laughs> and Jesus, again, he doesn't say, yeah, I am. He says, you say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate, you know, oh my goodness, we have such chronological snobbery. We think in our little post-Christian world, we just, it's the worst. People just hate truth. And they hate truth more than they've ever hated truth. And things are relative now. And it used to be back in the good old days, people just believed that the truth came from God. And that was that. No. No, no, no. Have you ever read Greek philosophy? Have you ever read what? No. Pilate laughs. What is truth? What is truth? That's ridiculous. Right? I mean, this could be out of a playbook from today. 2022. What is truth? That's, right? After he had said this, Pilate went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Do you have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He is hoping so badly they say, oh, yeah, 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 release him. But they don't. They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary probably a violent revolutionary. 19.1, then Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, clothed him in a purple robe, and they kept coming up to him and saying, hail, king of the Jews, and they were slapping his face. And Pilate went outside again, and he said, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds against charging him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, here is the man. And Pilate is mocking them at this point because Jesus is a bloody mess. Possibly barely recognizable at this point. And he's like, this is, here's the guy that you are so afraid is gonna destroy you and your people. Here he is, guys. Here he is. And I'm sure Pilate was hoping this would assuage them. They would see, oh, yeah, this is really ridiculous. We're afraid of this guy. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, verse 6, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself. I find no grounds for charging him. Verse 7, but we have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. There we go. There we go. There's a charge. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. And he went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. And this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not 
Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. A lot of scholars believe that was the exact time when the Passover lambs, because um, it was commanded in Exodus they'd be slaughtered in the evening because of the massive amount of people that would have gathered for Passover, that they actually had to start at noon. So there's some possible other scholars like no, but possible significance um, to that timetable. And then he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And this right here is one of the most idolatrous statements. For the people of God, the Jewish people, then say, we have no king but Caesar. Whoa. And they handed them over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a sign made and put on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign because the place where he was crucified was near the city. And it was written, listen, in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. You want to know why? Because Jesus had already said, I will be lifted up, and I'm going to draw all nations to myself. So John is connecting those dots for us. The people don't understand it. Pilate doesn't even understand it. But that's the symbolism, the significance there. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. All right, let's stop there. There are so, so many lessons we could pull from Pilate about Jesus' authority. And he's the next person on your list, Pilate. All right? Um, We could talk about the nature of Jesus' authority. We could talk about Jesus' redefinition of power. We could talk about the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom, his identity as king, the nature of truth, the fact that Jesus' kingdom is neither established nor lost through political strategies. All of that is loaded in this text. But here's what I want to highlight. Pilate teaches us that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. Pilate teaches us that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. Now, John makes it obvious that there's not one millisecond of these events over which God is not completely in control. He's made that obvious the entire gospel. I mean, how many times have these people tried to arrest Jesus and, like, they couldn't because his hour had not yet come? Well, who is commandeering all of that? The Father is, right? Like I said before, John goes out of his way to make all these things clear. He focuses way less on the suffering of Jesus in order to highlight the control that Jesus maintained over everything that happened. And this control comes into high view in verse 11 of chapter 19. Take a look 
at it again with me. Jesus says this, Pilate gets all like power move. You refuse to speak to me? Don't you know who I am? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all. Jesus answered him, if it had not been given to you from above. But take a look at the second part. And we often just kind of like, we're so like wowed by that statement, we don't, we don't think about what comes next. He says, this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And what Jesus is saying there is that Judas, the Jewish leaders, and Pilate are all complicit in varying degrees in Jesus' death. So their actions, while predetermined and presided over by the sovereign rule of God, are labeled by Jesus as sin, and they are held responsible for those actions. Now, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, because Peter's going to bring this up in one of his sermons, and it's just such a great summary of what we see here. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Peter is preaching, all right, this is after Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost has happened, and they're going out, and the greater works that Jesus promised are, are going to start happening as they proclaim the gospel. And so Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. And look at this. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. And Peter goes on to hit pretty heavy. They are guilty of killing the son of God. And he calls them to repentance. And so here, here we have such a, just a clear picture of what, what is so often a source of such quandary for us, right? Christians tend to divide over what they think is truer, God's sovereignty or human responsibility. And yet, Scripture, and I could take you to so many other places, it just consistently presents us with both. It like plops both of them right down together, right side by side, in a single verse without any explanation as to how they fit together. It's almost like we don't need to know. It's almost like we don't need to know. Is God ultimately in control of all things? Yes. No exceptions. Do our decisions and our actions and our responses, do they matter? Absolutely. Are we held responsible for those? Absolutely. All over scripture, it's side by side without any explanation. So I just stopped trying to figure it out about 15 years ago. I've been a lot happier. <laughs> what do you believe? The sovereignty of God or the free will of man, the responsibility of man? Both. I just believe both and I hold them in tension and I'm fine with it, right? And that's kind of what we have to do. If you're uncomfortable with tension, you are not going to like the field of theology. 
There's a lot of things you can't bring together. You're like, they're both true. I don't know how in the heck they come together, but they're both true, right? That's just one of those. I thought it was worth mentioning. Pilate's a really good example of that, all right? Skip down to verse 25 of chapter 19. I need to get back to chapter 19, sorry. All right. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, which we believe is John, there's um, not everyone, there's not full consensus on that, but most people believe John. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. All right. Now, by itself, this appears to simply be a tender, heart-wrenching scene where Jesus, as he is suffering and dying, he remembers his mother. But this is not by itself. This is set within the whole gospel of John. And within the story that John has been telling, this is way more than just a sweet, sentimental moment between Jesus and his mom. And here's what Mary and the beloved disciple show us. All right, so that's next on your list, Mary. And you can write John. I'm going to say the beloved disciple since there are very, like, good scholars that are a little bit hesitant to be dogmatic about that. But you can write John. It's safe to write John. Mary and the beloved disciple show us that through his death and resurrection, Jesus radically redefines family. So Mary and the beloved disciple show us that through his death and resurrection, Jesus radically defines family. And John has been setting us up for this moment. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, in that amazing prologue, he says, but to all who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God to those who believe in his name, who are not born of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. So we're not talking about bi biological family. We're talking about a new spiritual family that Jesus come, has come into the world um, to create. And then, of course, we have that whole conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus says you have to be born again or born from above. And the whole conversation about being born being born of water and of spirit. And then, of course, if you parallel what John's been doing, um, if you have that scene in uh, Matthew chapter 12, let's turn there real quick because I don't want to get it wrong. All right, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, says, while Jesus was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him, and someone told him, hey, your mother and brothers are waiting for you. They want to talk to you. And Jesus replies to the one who's speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does my will of the Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And if you, like Jesus, we know from an earlier passage, he had brothers, actual biological brothers. And yet he looks at the beloved disciple 
and he places his own mother in his family. Why? Because they, they didn't have a biological bond, but they had a spiritual bond that in the mind of Jesus is more significant and more profound than any family or blood ties that we might have. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about John 14, 2, where Jesus says, um, I go in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And um, I talked to you about how the fact that father's house, always a reference for the temple, And that there's a really, really good reason to believe that the place Jesus is going to prepare is actually us. It's it's his followers. Through the sending of his spirit, we become the temple. We are the many rooms. We are the place of his abiding presence. And so in this exchange between Jesus and the beloved disciple and Mary is John's way of indicating, of signaling, it's happening, you guys. It's happening. Jesus is dying. Oh, but a new household of God, a new family is coming alive. It's coming alive. And this has massive implications on our identity, our mission, our sense of belonging. Jesus places his followers in the family. And I tell you what, for us living in an intensely individualistic western culture where it's me 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 and i i i this is a really important thing to remember because from a biblical point of view it's us 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 and we 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 (laughs) all the way through let's pick up in verse 28 all right i'll pick up the pace after this when jesus knew that everything was now finished that the scripture might be fulfilled He said, I'm thirsty, and a jar of sour wine was sitting there, and they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, and I am going to be good and move on. All right, 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. And so they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. And we talked about the significance of that a few weeks ago. We talked about the water of life. Um, there's definitely some symbolism and some pretty cool um, Old Testament tie-ins happening there. Verse 35, he who saw this has testified so that you may also believe his testimony is true, for he knows he's telling the truth, for these things happened that the scripture would be fulfilled. This is another indicator that Jesus is completely in control of all these events the whole time, right? Things are happening just as they're supposed to. And he quotes from Old Testament passages. Psalms are the... John quotes from the Psalms in the crucifixion narrative. Um, He says, not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. Here's what I want to focus on. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, very interestingly, he was a secret disciple because of his fear of the Jews. Apparently, he's maturing and growing and not a secret anymore. He asked Pilate, that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gives him permission, so he came to take his body away. And Nicodemus, remember, who also came to Jesus at night, man, his faith has progressed. We see that here. 
Um, so Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That is a lot, you guys. This is um, a lot of commentators see like a ro- royal burial motif, like kings would be, would, would be buried with that much, right? So, so Nicodemus has the wealth. He, he, he brings it. And then it says they took Jesus' body, they wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices. According to the burial custom of the Jews, there was a garden in a place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. Now, now John's mentioned garden three times now. You know, it's a significant garden. Yeah, way back at the beginning of the Bible, right? Which is where he started, his whole gospel. So interesting play on words there. All right, I want to talk about Nicodemus. He's next on our list. And then we just have one more, and we're going to wrap this up. It's going to be a little longer than usual. I am not even apologizing for it because this passage is so good. All right. Um, so Nicodemus is next on our list. And remember, when we see Nicodemus, we think, oh, he's the guy, the whole born-again guy, right? That whole really important conversation. John chapter 3, he's the one that Jesus was talking to about that. And we, when we covered that chapter, we talked about what it means to be born again. We talked about why Nicodemus had such a hard time with it initially. But there's one really important aspect of being born again that we didn't talk about because it doesn't come into view until chapter 19. And that is the fact. All right, so this is the truth that we learned from Nicodemus. For someone to be born someone else has to suffer. Now think about it. For someone to be born, someone else has to suffer. There's a lot of mamas in this room. Um, I had two vaginal births. Both were in a lovely hospital, and I had both with an epidural because I'm all about, like, reverse the curse, right? It was about as good a situation as you could possibly get. But even with all of that, all the trappings, of modern Western medicine. It was terrible. Like, it, it was rough. Birth is not for the faint of heart. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how medicated you are. I remember uh, with my first. I didn't make this mistake the second time. But first time, it's about to come time to push. And the nurse is like, do you want the mirror? I'm like, yeah, like, so cool. I want to see it. It's amazing. It's a miracle of birth. And they put that thing, I mean, I looked at that thing for two seconds, and I was like, get that out of my way. I mean, like, I do not want to see that. I do not want to see that. Um, Both births, Greg just turned white, and they're having to, like, sit down, sit down. We can't can't have you fainting right now. And so, and I've got to say, I, I I don't blame them. I don't blame them. But do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples back in chapter 16? Turn back there, verse 21. He, he uses a birth metaphor. And he says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So the end result is beautiful. New birth, but the process is brutal and bloody. Jesus endured suffering so that Nicodemus could enjoy sonship 
And there's no other way that could have been accomplished. No other way. Because for someone to be born, someone else has to suffer. And I'll tell you what, I was thinking this week how the heart's cry of every loving mother is, my life for yours. Jesus has looked upon us and he has said the very same thing. My life for yours. I died. I suffered so that you could be born again. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we learn as we tie in um, what we see here with what Jesus has already communicated to Nicodemus. All right, the very last section. I mean, I cannot go home without reading something from chapter 20, right? It's like pretty pretty important. And so let's take a look. I'll read really fast. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Now, this always shocks me because Jesus was so clear. But but you see, the, the idea of a bodily resurrection was just as nonsensical to them as it is to us, right? So I don't know if they had, like, thought it was a metaphor, like a lot of people do today, but, like, for some reason, not even on their radar. Whoa. Verse 3, at that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. (laughs) I always think that's kind of funny. If it was John, I'm like, is he flexing here? It sounds like he's flexing, like, I got there first, right? And stooping down, they saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, there's a lot of references to these cloths, and what John is trying to do is he he also made a big point about Lazarus's cloths that were all wrapped around him, a big hot mess, right? Jesus's cloths are all neat and orderly. The face cloth is folded and lying there. So this was not like Lazarus, um, you know, was was kind of re- reinvigorated, but Jesus was resurrected. This is a different thing that has happened here, and John's trying to clue us into that. Verse 6, then following him, Simon Peter also came in. He entered the tomb. They saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth. It was folded up nicely in a separate place by itself. Do you think grave robbers are like, oh, let's stop to fold the cloths? No, no. Verse 8, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that they must rise from the dead. And then the disciples turned, returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary, she stayed. She stood outside the tomb. She's crying. As she's crying, she stoops in to look at the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the Jews, Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. I don't know where they put him. And having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, he said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you were seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him. I will take him away. She's ready to take on this gardener, you guys. She's going to get his body. I don't know. She's going to put it on her back. I don't know what she thinks she's going to do. But she's like, tell me where the body is. I'll take it. I'll take care of it, right? And Jesus said to her, what did he say to her? Mary. Oh, what a great throwback to John chapter 10. The good shepherd knows his own. 
and he calls them by name, and they hear his voice. That's what's going on here. He says her name, and turning around, she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And he says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her. Now, there's a lot written about that. I mean, he let the disciples touch him, so there was nothing wrong with touching him. There wasn't, like, something super, like, you can't touch his resurrected body. Um, but this clinging, it was almost like she was, like, holding fast to him. And the implication is, it's not like it used to be, Mary. We're kind of in a new phase now. So hug me, welcome me, love on me, but let's go because this is moving forward, right? Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers. Sent. He sends her. Tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to all the dudes, Hiding out, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Mary Magdalene's going to be our last character that we're going to look at. So she's last on your list. And she teaches us a lot of things. But you know I can't pass this one up. She teaches us that women are worthy witnesses. She teaches us that women are worthy witnesses. Now, to us, living in 2022, we're like, duh, right? But listen, listen, if this were a made-up account, like if John were creating his own story and the other gospel writers were just making this stuff up, rather than describing an eyewitness account, there is no way, absolutely no way in light of the intensely patriarchal society of his day that anyone, that anyone would write a woman in to such a significant role in the story like we have here and in the other gospels. They just would not have. One of those men would have been the hero. One of those men would have been at the tomb. One of those men would have been the first to see the risen Savior not only is Mary Magdalene the first witness to the resurrection, which from a biblical worldview is the biggest event in the history of the entire world, but the way the story is written, her devotion and insight makes the guys look bad in comparison. She like wipes the floor with them, right? We need to recognize that this was intensely countercultural at the time, intensely so. We also need to recognize that it is consistent with the high view of women that we see throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. This is nothing new. God has been featuring women literally from the very first page, which is why it's so devastating that the church is often the place where women feel the least valued and where they are most likely to not have a voice. And listen, Bible-loving Christians can and should hold different opinions about whether or not women can preach on Sunday morning or hold pastoral positions. The fact that we attend this church probably says something about where we stand on that. And it's a different place than other Christians stand because there's some room for different opinions on that. But there is no biblical allowance whatsoever for followers of Jesus to hold different opinions about the worth of women and their value as leaders, even in mixed gender contexts. 
no room whatsoever for any different opinions on that. It is so crystal clear in scripture that God values the voice of women, he values the leadership of women, he values the gifts of women, and that they are worthy witnesses. That's resoundingly clear from the very first page of the Bible all the way through the end. And hopefully that is so obvious to you. Hopefully you already know that. Hopefully it's old news. But just in case, I am determined that no one ever make it out of one of my Bible studies without hearing how much God values women and how grieved he is when they are sidelined or silenced. And it happens every single day. Not out in the world, but in the church of Jesus Christ. Happens to old churches. It shouldn't happen in the church of women. So much more we could talk about. Thankfully, I've got most everything covered in the workbook. If you're curious about something, I want to close with one of my favorite stories. And Amy said I was going to put a big, nice bow on this study. I sure am glad that I stayed up really late and wrestled and wrestled. Like, how do I close this? Because I almost just ended it with Mary Magdalene, and I would have like so disappointed you. No. Uh, I want to close with one of my favorite stories. It's actually not my story. It's Tim Keller's story. I'm a big Tim Keller fan. He's a Presbyterian pastor. Um, He's retired now, but he served for many, many years in New York City, Manhattan. In the summer of 1970, at a Christian camp in Colorado, a woman Bible teacher shared an illustration that radically changed Tim Keller's life. He is one of my spiritual heroes, so when I hear something like that, I perk up. I want to know what illustration radically changed Tim Keller's life. She said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high, and the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. That is how big the galaxy is. If you ask any scientists today, they say it is continuing to expand. And yet the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust, virtually in the whole universe. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ both created and holds this universe together with the word of his power. With his pinky, as it were. And then she asked the question, is this the kind of person that you ask to be your personal assistant? Personal assistant, Jesus. Is this the creator of the universe, the holder together of the universe, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant. Then she had them all get up and walk around in silence for an hour, no one speaking, and think about the implications of what she just said for their lives. And this is the perfect illustration with which to wrap up John's gospel, isn't it? Because think how he begins his gospel. Go ahead and look with me again at John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life is 
the light of men. Skip down to verse 14. The word, this word, this incarnate word, creator of the universe, what happened to him? Well, he became flesh. And, and he dwelt, he lived, he made his dwelling, he tabernacled among us. And, and, and people like John said, well, you know, we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the very last verse, 18, no one has ever seen God. Oh, but the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side, he has revealed him. I'll tell you, with that fresh in our minds, along with all the words and works of Jesus that we have spent the last 10 weeks marveling at, I ask you the same question that Bible teacher asked Tim Keller back in the summer of 1970. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant, to help make you better, to grant you blessings and self-esteem, to be the therapeutic self-help guru? That so many today make him out to be. Or is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your savior because you need one and to be your king because he is? John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Oh, but these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Oh, but this kind of believing Jesus is talking about, it's not just a mental thing. It's not just believing in Jesus as a concept. No, no, no. It's the kind of believing that ushers you into a brand new life. Father, I thank you for um, just the many, many truths that we have covered in the study. I was kind of lamenting of how many of them I've already forgotten. <laughs> oh, but we just trust that the things that, um, that you would have cemented in our minds and hearts, you have by your spirit cemented in our minds and hearts. And Lord, I do pray that you would just... Um, uh, give us eyes to see Jesus, our King, Jesus, our Savior, and that our hearts would bow in allegiance, full allegiance to King Jesus, and that that allegiance to King Jesus would lead to greater beauty and goodness in our world. We are the means by which the beauty and goodness of the gospel goes out into this world that so desperately needs it. And so help us live sent, help us live with our hearts stirred, with affection for Jesus. And we just thank you for these weeks together. We thank you for your word. Um, oh, Lord, we, we do not take it lightly that we get to do this. What a gift. What a good, good gift from such a good, good God. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. You did it! Aww. 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 Aww.